This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like and that is incredibly urgent right now is From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation by Kianga Yamada-Taylor. In this stirring and insightful analysis, activist and scholar Kianga Yamada-Taylor surveys the historical and contemporary ravages of racism and persistence of structural inequality such as mass incarceration and black unemployment. In this context, she argues that this new struggle against police violence holds the potential to reignite a broader push for black liberation. As Michelle Alexander, author of The New Jim Crow, says of the book, Kianga Yamada-Taylor's searching examination of the social, political, and economic dimensions of the prevailing racial order offers important context for understanding the necessity of the emerging movement for black liberation. From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation by Kianga Yamada-Taylor. Out now from Haymarket Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. The utterly preventable spread of COVID-19 has killed more than 100,000 Americans and ended the entirety of economic and social reality as we knew it. Trump, the president who has presided over this disaster, is now threatening to deploy the military to cities nationwide and has already done so in Washington, D.C. Liberal critics are right that Trump is dangerous obviously. But a true reckoning with Trump's threat to American norms and institutions must account for how both of those things help make him president. It must account for why this quarantine collapsed amid a historic mass uprising against ordinary racist police violence in a Democratic-ruled city. Democrats leading a hashtag resistance to Trump now face a rebellion against the entire status quo. Today, I'm speaking about this moment of uprising with Kathy Cohen, Jason Perez, and Malika Jabali. Before we get started, I hope that you enjoyed our first episode of Antibody, our three-part narrative series on life and politics during COVID. If you haven't listened yet, I highly recommend that you do so. And I want to thank all of you who support us at patreon.com for making this series possible. Three quarters of the money we used to pay all these incredible radio producers who are making such incredible work came from you, people who are supporting us at patreon.com. And so check out Antibody if you haven't yet. The second episode will be out next week. But this week, instead of asking you to support us on Patreon, I want to encourage you to donate what you can to support these uprisings and the broader movement. One great way to do that is by contributing to the Black Visions Collective at blackvisionsmn.org. That's blackvisionsmn.org. I'll put a link in the show notes. Okay, here's Kathy Cohen, Jason Perez, and Malika Jabali. Kathy Cohen is a black queer feminist professor at the University of Chicago and the author of Boundaries of Blackness and Democracy Remixed. She is the founder and director of the Black Youth Project and of the Jen Ford Survey and helped start political organizations including Black AIDS Mobilization, the Audre Lorde Project, and most recently, Scholars for Social Justice. Jason Perez is a senior research analyst at ACRE, the Action Center on Race and the Economy, and organizes with DSA's Afro-Socialists and Socialists of Color Caucus. 
Before becoming a researcher, Jason was a lead organizer for SCIU Local 73 and BYP 100. Malika Jabali is a writer, activist, and filmmaker whose first short film, Left Out, examines the economic crisis facing black Midwesterners. I will post a link to that film in the show notes. And Malika, as you'll likely notice, has to run partway through this interview. Anyhow, here's the show. See you in the streets. Stay safe. Kathy Cohen, Jason Perez, and Malika Jabali, welcome and welcome back to The Dig. Glad to be here, Daniel. Happy to be here. Thank you for having us. Appreciate it. I wanted to start by talking a bit about what you're seeing and experiencing firsthand on the streets. Starting with you, Jason, you got injured recently. If you could say what happened to you, how are you doing, and what's going on in Chicago? Yeah, yeah, I'm 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 doing all right. You know, I have I have a have a slight concussion. You know, CAT scan came back cool. Um, got hit with a baton. We we're trying to do a de-arrest. There was like a a protest that happened in Hyde Park, which is um, you know a pretty bougie area of Chicago on the south side where Obama is, and there was like just a lot of police there just to try to protect the banks and the and the, and the shops there. And it was pretty much dispersing. And then, um, you know, we saw someone, it looked like, you know, they were just, you know, doing like rioting, protesting, and cops like jumped on this person. You know, how we normally operate, it's a lot of us who come from um, like Movement for Black Lives spaces. So, you know, we try to de-arrest folks, um, which is basically just a tactic of, you know, you grab the person who's about to be arrested by the police you know, and then you surround the police officers so that they can't get because what they usually try to do is get a bunch of people to try to arrest like one person or two people. And then you, you know, pull the person away so that they don't get arrested anymore. And the idea behind that is that, you know, A, you know, ethically, we just don't want people getting arrested. But B, you know, the more people get arrested, the more if it's a deterrent for people to come out and protest. And um, and we always need more bodies on the ground to, to you know, resist against police. So, so we attempted to do that. Like, it, you know, they tried to get three different people, uh, four different people. One of the people we got out and then unfortunately three of the people we didn't. And so, you know, they did what cops do and, you know, they tack with batons and, you know, smack people up and stuff. But luckily, the three people, uh, Malcolm, Jennifer and Damon got out. Um, we did jail support, but obviously we're still doing jail support for the thousands of people that, you know, Lori Lightfoot has locked up and... um you know, are going to keep on trying to do that to get them all out. So, Kathy, anything you want to add on the situation in Chicago, what you're seeing? I mean, I think Jason has kind of covered it all. I guess I would say that, you know, on the front lines, what Jason detailed is absolutely right. I think that there are other orgs that are also trying to be supportive, uh, holding rallies, engaging in protests, providing bail support. Um, and to understand it as kind of multi-layered in terms of the work. I know a lot of what people see on t- television, right, are rightly so folks putting themselves and their bodies on the line, but to know that there are kind of networks and organizations also trying to do the work. The, the one thing I'll just add to what Jason said is, you know, I think there are groups like Scholars for Social Justice, which I'm a part of, that are also trying to highlight the kind of multiple ways in which the police work. So, when Jason is in Hyde Park, I suspect, I think this is true, that the University of Chicago police were there uh, supporting 
right? Yeah. Chicago, Chicago police. Yeah, they were. Yeah. So, so to be thinking about the kind of multiple sources of policing that are happening in the city and trying to kind of address and attack all of those. So, yeah. And Malika, what's going on in New York? You're under an 8 p.m. curfew there. There are some people who are defying the, the curfew, which is unusually early. And the sentiment seems to be that in the last couple of days or the last, maybe the last day, it's calmed down a bit. I was out at a march yesterday that was advertised as a peaceful march. And this was just a part of Brooklyn and it's near Barclays Barclays Center where there was some previous incidents of violence, but, and I'm talking about police violence, not the, the self-defense that some of the protesters are are implementing. And so when police officers don't escalate, then we generally don't see civilians who are marching and, and protesting escalate either. So from what I viewed from our, you know, just our vantage point in Brooklyn, back near the, the Barclays Center, there was less police escalation, but there are protests happening all over the city. And I'm not sure, you know, what how it is on the ground there. It, I think it's just going to vary. But from where I was in Brooklyn, or it had been, you know, really tense in previous days, it calmed down. And there's a lot of solidarity when we were walking through the neighborhood. There were everyone, like no one was complaining about the fact that we we're blocking traffic. The cars would have to wait patiently sometimes for large groups of people to go by. And they were honking and cheering throwing up black power fists. So it, it really felt like a communal catharsis in a way. I, I just wanted to say too, that most movement organizations are people who are just there on their own, you know, like, you know, we support it, whether, whatever you want to call it, right? Whether you want to call people protesters, whether you want to call them rioters, looters, like, you know, when we're trying to de-arrest someone, it could be someone who just walked out of a shop grabbing something and, you know, I think at times we want to make these distinctions between all these different folks. But, you know, like we support rage. We support black rage, especially against corporate targets, against uh, state state targets. We're not saying that that's going to be what gets us strategically to A to B or whatever. But, um, you know, always just wanting to push against the idea of like peaceful, whatever, disciplined protesters versus like rambunctious, whatever thing, like, you know, whether the police were antagonizing us or not, people are going to rage out how they need to rage out. And we support that. And, um, you know, we just want to make sure people get out and get freed because they shouldn't be jailed or imprisoned because of that. Um, No one should be in prisons or jails, but especially because they're raging against a system that just like kills black folks, you know, with impunity. I want to align really with what Jason just said and look at the history of urban unrest in this country, um, which is where my focus is. But, you know, of course, this is happening globally. And in the United States, we often had this escalation from Black people, Black people in cities, Black people who were fighting for abolition in the 1800s. And and New York is included in that, where we fought peacefully for years, if not decades, And without any sort of change, fundamental change from, you know, the powers that we are pushing back on, none of those changes happen. And so that agitation, that's a frequent frequent response in history, including arson. You know, a lot of these changes did not happen until Black people set their communities on fire. They set the the governor's mansion on fire. And so I, I look at it historically and look at what has actually 
pushed the needle. I do a lot of my research on the 1967 and 68 uprisings in throughout in, you know, industrial cities, but especially in the Midwest, because we see a lot of those same extreme conditions exist now. And so it's a historical trend, but it's also something that had to be implemented almost as a strategy to get anything done. Following up on that, to whoever wants to jump in, horrifying violence and, and countless other injustices are so ordinary in this country, particularly for Black people, particularly for Black working class and poor people. What was it about where people were at when the video of George Floyd's murder emerged? Black people in particular and also people in general, this this moment after two months of the coronavirus health and economic crises, what was it that made people so militant and ready to fight? Not just ready to protest, but to confront the police and to loot because people, of course, are not always or inevitably primed for militant protest. What What made conditions so ripe right when they did? Well, you know, I'll, I'll jump in because I think uh, this is the question, right, that many of us are trying to figure out. And I don't think there's one answer. And in fact, I think there's a conflation of issues and conditions that have brought us to this point and that we better leverage this point because I don't know when we'll be here again. You know, I think there are many, I call them issues of despair and rage leading to organizing that has produced this rebellion. One, of course, it's the fact of COVID, right? The fact that 40 million people don't have employment, are not promised or expect to be employed again, that this is a condition that has already been the experience of many Black communities and other, Latin, like, for example, Latinx communities, right? It is the disproportionate impact of COVID and death, the reminder of the kind of expendability of Black bodies and, and Black life, right? It's kind of precarity on steroids. And so in that moment, to see George Floyd, to see Breonna Taylor, to see Ahmaud Arbery, right? We can go and to see the kind of the personification of the weaponization of, of racism in Amy Cooper, we could say, you know, is the spark that lit the tinder on. But I want to I want to offer up two or three other things. One is, I think, Young people in particular, all of us have been reminded of the limits of an electoral strategy with the election of Obama and his neoliberal policies. That's not to say Obama wouldn't be better than Trump now. To me, that's not the question, right? It is a reminder yet again of the limits of something we call electoral black power, right? The, to see this moment, in fact, when in many cities that are under rebellion, they are often led, for example, by black women who I believe eloquently talk about their blackness, but talk about their blackness as they call up the National Guard on black people, right? So we we understand the limits of an electoral strategy. We have the exhaustion or whatever you want to call it with law and order Trump. But the other thing I'll just, I just want to raise and then other folks can jump in is I think also we're seeing the benefits where what we are reaping from a generation of protests and of organizing, right? So if you think back to the immigration marches in 2006, if you think back to Occupy in 2011, if you think back to M4BL and the work they've been doing since 2013, right? This is a generation of young people who have grown up both understanding the limits of electoral politics, but also understanding the possibilities through organizing and through revolt and protest. And I think it's all of those things that lead us to this moment where, in fact, young people and, and many people are kind of saying what we're looking for is systemic change. We're not looking for reform. Yes, we want justice for George Floyd, but we want something more. 
And I think that's part of what is leading us to this moment. Jason, Malika? I mean, I know for a fact people who even from the anti-globalization, you know, movements and the you know, battle in Seattle, a lot of them you know, via other organizations, you know, trained a lot of us in movement for black lives around direct action, around de-arresting, around how do you lay siege to a police station? How do you lay, lay siege to like a, you know, like a magnificent mile or whatever the, you know, where the shops were all the billion billionaire class um, shops at. I also too think that, you know, I'm, I feel like, yeah, for sure, COVID-19. And also I think just sometimes, Things are spontaneous because they're spontaneous. You know, I know I'm super happy for it. I'm super happy that people are, you know, far more militant and confrontational with cops, not letting their friends get de-arrested, knowing to challenge them at, at police stations. And, you know, we just got to keep on doing it. And, I, you know, and I'm, I'm grateful for all the work that we've had and the experience that we've had. You know, I think, you know, Jane McLevy talks about, you know, how striking is a muscle. And I think, you know, organizing and militant civil disobedience at the mass level is also a muscle and that we have to exercise it and use it. And so all those movements and I would say even electoral politics at some level on the more, you know, like whether it's the Sanders side or Warren side or some of like these black black mayors that Kathy were talking about. I think, you know, those people also are really important in terms of making sure we have the infrastructure of support so that we can engage, engage in this mass civil unrest. You know, those are the people who are helping set up bond funds, um, listening to people at bond court, doing jail support, doing medic support, because all those things take organization in order to even to have a successful rebellion, riot, whatever you want to call it. And here I'm defining success as like, you know, the amount of damage done to, you know, like our corporate and capitalist overlords. You have to have some level of coordination. And um, so, yeah, I, yeah, I think that definitely has a big part of it. Malika? To what Kathy was saying, I think she covered it quite comprehensively. And I just want to add uh, a little bit of anecdotal reporting that I did when I was in Atlanta. And that's actually my my hometown. I was raised there. And there's always this trope about it being a, a Black Mecca and a city for Black excellence. But at the same time, it also has the highest income inequality in the country. So if we take what is supposed to be the best place for African-Americans and we still see that it has all of these challenges and disparities, then no wonder Black people around the country are going to protest. And I think if you think about working class people across race, just all over the country, just thinking of the electoral politics, we're gaslit in a way because we were we understand the conditions that we're in. We're seeing the breakdown in our public health infrastructure and our social infrastructure. And yet we had so few Democratic primary candidates. And I'm assuming, you know, the people who are thinking this way, thinking about systemic change would be more aligned with with Democrats than, you know, Republicans, of course, or, um, you know, perhaps the Green Party as well. But if this is the the party that's supposed to be a front runner and supposed to be leading the country when it comes to Black people and progressives and this whole umbrella, yet you have so few people talking about fundamental change. And then you have a primary candidate who's saying that he does not want to pursue any fundamental change. You have a Black primary candidate like Kamala Harris saying that she doesn't think that we need to change anything systemically. So on one hand, we're, we're feeling, we're seeing, we're experiencing these inequities. And then on the other, the, on the other hand, the people who are being touted as leaders are saying nothing needs to change. So I, I think it is that frustration of pushing back on a, a narrative that seemed to be gaslighting the rest of the country. Kathy, you, you spoke to how the context of the COVID health and economic crises, how that informed this uprising. I wonder how might this uprising in turn shape the unfolding politics 
of the COVID economic and health crisis, because from where we're standing now, we're looking at unemployment heading maybe to 20 percent or above and potentially recurrent waves of COVID outbreaks until and if, knock on wood, there's a there's a vaccine. So we're going to see a lot of politics around this beyond even this current uprising. But I don't really have a good sense of what it might look like. Right. I mean, I think what we're going to see are kind of policies and programs of relief. And what do I mean by that? I mean that there is a crisis of capitalism right now. There always ha- there has been, but there is a, a one that is clearly visible with COVID. And I think, what did you call them, Jason? The corporate and capitalist over- overlords are trying to figure out what they what they have to give, right, to provide some relief and what they would consider to be stability. So, for example, we've been talking with people about kind of what is possible. And for a very long time, capitalists and governance told us that, in fact, we couldn't stop evictions. We couldn't stop utility cutoffs. We couldn't stop student loan repayment. We couldn't release folks from who are incarcerated, right? But under a crisis of COVID and capitalism, and in fact, we have a program going on tonight called COVID Capitalism, right? Suddenly, these policies become possible, right? Suddenly, the city can say we are not going to evict anyone. Suddenly, the city can take folks who are homeless and put them in hotels. Suddenly, the city can say we're not going to cut off utilities, right? So I, I think, in fact, what we have to do is to begin to think about what is possible, given what has been revealed because of COVID, because of the high levels of unemployment, right? So a UBI, universal basic income, was said to be kind of off the table until it emerged as a stimulus check, again, to deal with the fact that there's so many people who are unemployed, and this is an administration worried about re-election. So, I, you know, I think organizers, and I will defer to, to Jason here, have to begin to kind of have us think about what is it we want past COVID? What is it we want when people undoubtedly continue to be in the streets, but at some point we're going to pivot and and want to be able to articulate clearly what we want. I know the Movement for Black Lives, for example, has already articulated uh, demands and policies that they think should be in place. But I, I do think this moment, COVID, unemployment, the rebellions are going to open up possibilities about what the state should be doing that we want to make visible and, and really push in terms of our campaigns and our outrage. Jason? Touching on what Kathy was saying before about all the different layers, you know, even um, at least in Chicago, you know, we have six socialist aldermen and they were like really essential for making sure that people can make sure they can see their lawyers, that like, you know, basic jail support can happen because, you know, standing on the National Guard because they had the National Guard at 51st and Wentworth when people were protesting for jail support. So I think on that one level, it's really important to have like electoral strategies and have like different layers of of organizing power and, you know, radical or, you know, like progressive political power. But then in conjunction with that, you know, they're already on the Socialist Alderman, working with United Working Families, Grassroots Collaborative, Democratic Socialists of America, um, and, and a bunch of other groups, at least in Chicago, already like ready to demand that, you know, for like the defund police demand that like we have a specific number. So like saying like three fourths of the police budget be cut and then putting that in relation that we should never have funding within the city of Chicago where you're paying more for police than you are for like public health services, education, you know, the list goes on. So, you know, people are already working on like how to articulate those those demands clearly so that it can't be because what we don't want is and a lot of 
you know, progressive mayors, black mayors are saying they support police accountability. They'll even maybe say some sort of abstract thing around limiting funding for police. But unless you kind of you put exact, you know, exact figures, exact numbers and exact demands around it, we're going to see a repeat of similar to what Obama did, which saying saying black lives matter, saying we need justice, but um, not actually putting on like what will actually have like, you know, which will actually defund police and stop, you know, police violence and mass incarceration in a meaningful way. Jason, you uh, earlier referenced Jane, Jane McAlevey, and I want to follow up on, on Kathy's comment by asking you, where do organizers like yourself with some very specific plans for, for transforming the world, how do organizers fit into this moment of, of mass mobilization? What's the dynamic between organization and mobilization in such a fluid period? I mean, my my thing is, like, first and foremost, I think it's always important, like, for, like, organizers, lifelong organizers, professional organizers, what, whatever you want to call yourself. You know, if I've organized for 18 years, just to kind of really recognize that most of the people who are doing this have no relationship to organ, no relationship to organization. They're way further ahead than any of, like, our strategy charts or any of our plans that we thought people were going to be on or do or whatever, you know. So I think it's just important to, you know, I think at some level have that humility of knowing that, you know, the people are ahead of what progressive and radical organizations usually think is possible or not possible. And then from there, it's, you know, it's to support, you know, if if wherever, you know, I guess what, what I'm always worried about and like what a lot of my comrades see is like this kind of tone policing or trying to tell people, oh, you need a strategy. Oh, you need this. Oh, you should be doing that or this or whatever. And that's what you know, people who are experienced organizers, we can do, we can figure out jail support, we can figure out bail support, we can figure out the the de-arrest stuff and all this other stuff and, and to help them out on that. But, you know, like our job isn't to be telling them, oh, you should be doing A, B, and C. At best, we should maybe be giving suggestions and support and taking people's lead. That's not to romanticize saying, you know, the masses on the street know A, B, or C, but it's also to kind of give a distance to saying, Left organizations, whether it's Movement for Black Lives, DSA, people who are in Sanders, you know, we didn't necessarily, we didn't cause this moment. And um, and all of our strategies and charts didn't make this moment happen. And, you know, I'm not sure that all of our strategies and charts will actually capitalize on this moment, as we've seen with Occupy, as we've seen with Ferguson and Baltimore. So I think it's important that we have planned strategies and I'm, you know, all my comrades are doing that, but doing it in a way that's supportive of the people um, taking to the streets and not trying to, you know, say, do this or that or whatever. Malika, I know you do organizing work as as well. How do you think about this as a strategist and an organizer? People on the ground, they, they're almost like the first responders in a way because they're the ones experiencing police, the police state more intimately. If they're, you know, living in that community, then they're getting the, the phone calls, you know, at, at late hours of of the night where they might need to respond to something that happened around the corner. And my work is a little bit more institutional than that, where we're trying to see how we can bring more Black radical elected activists into office. And we understand, so I, I work with an organization called Operation Power, people organizing and working for empowerment and respect. And it's based in East New York, Brooklyn. And because so many of these issues are interrelated and they have a lot to do with our economic conditions and our housing and segregation, we've been doing a good amount of work with that in terms of like, what kind of reforms do we need pending the revolution? You know, we're a group of 
revolutionaries. At the same time, we understand that to get to certain outcomes, like just basic health services, basic, you know, living conditions, we're going to need state power. And we're not going to be able to get, you know, like we're talking about defunding the police. There has to be that sort of inside outside strategy. And so that's a lot of what we do is we do organizing on the street, but a lot of it is how do we really dismantle the the Democratic Party establishment that tends to be neoliberal in its politics, even in a liberal city like New York? And how do we get more Black people to understand that capitalism and white supremacy are the radical, are the roots of all these other conditions that we're experiencing, homelessness to the housing crisis to, you know, overcrowded hospitals. And so that's where we're kind of seeing this moment is raising people's consciousness. And so we're planning on doing a town hall on that in a couple of weeks. And then, you know, really just figuring things out. I don't think, you know, anyone really knows the answer. If we knew the answer, then we would be free by now. Um, (laughs) But we're, you know, we're just kind of feeling it out and hoping to use this opportunity to talk about the hypocrisy of capitalism and raising people's consciousness about it. Kathy, you, you, you've seen mass uprisings come and go over the years. How, how can left organizers use these moments of acute unrest to build power, build institutions that outlast these moments? I love that you say over the years. Yes, I've been here. So <laughs> Sorry. Long. No, 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 no. That's good. That's good. Um, it's true. <laughs> um, well, I, I wanted to, to in part respond to Jason and hopefully get to, to your question also, which is, you know, when I was talking about kind of beginning to organize and think about what's possible, I wasn't suggesting, in fact, that we tell people what to do, although... I do think that that's part of what organizing, not to do, but, you know, give people infrastructure and information, political education and opportunities to do the things that that we would all say would make them free. Right. So we're building on people's lived experience and also their own sense of consciousness. But, you know, I've been in a number of protests recently. Oftentimes it's a big crowd of folks. And I think we do have to disaggregate. And, and Jason, at one point, you and I'm not just picking on Jason. I love Jason, right? But um, yeah, you said, you know, rioters, looters. I, I think you have to disaggregate and, and have strategies between activists and organizers, folks who are just mobilized, for example, through their church to come into the street versus those who are, I would say, enraged and in need and might, in fact, engage in something that they call looting, right, or extraction. And And so it seems to me that part of what we all have a responsibility to do is start to think about how do you get folks who are kind of coming into the street, but to broaden or to build on their broaden, broader understanding of what's going on. So when folks are there to say justice for George, well, what does justice for George Floyd look like? It is not just police reform. It's about kind of poor Black communities having control. It's about poor Black people having opportunities and a kind of a way of living that, in fact, is both dignified and joyful and full, right? We have a responsibility to ensure that the state provides that. And to that point, we've got to build power both through the state and outside the state. 
so I think this is a kind of special moment. And it I think it's not just about organizers. It's about, for example, folks who work in the academy and how do we create space so that people can really begin to kind of broaden their analysis and then have an infrastructure in community to act on that broader analysis, right? And I'm, I, I want to believe that we're prepared for this moment. I know we've, we've benefited from folks going into the street and saying no more. Now the question is, can we or have we built an infrastructure when people say no more that we can help push that agenda of no more? Jason? Oh yeah, no, I, I I totally agree. Um, yeah, I didn't. I think I was speaking, and I agreed with what you had said before, Kathy. Like, I I agree with that. I think I was speaking more to, I think more of like a narrow social media discourse kind of organizer influencer that just kind of comes in as like, you know, all oh, this is good, this is great, but what you really need to do is, and so um, I think that's what I was more so speaking to. But yeah, like I mean, we need to. Um, and I hope we are and we can figure out, you know, how to support what's going on on the ground, but then also cr- provide a strategic pathway to, you know, our actual goals of, you know, democratizing the economy, getting rent relief for folks, defunding the police, having real community accountability and, you know, guiding people to what that looks like, you know, because I think for a lot of folks, abolition is just maybe this big abstract thing, but they don't necessarily know what it looks like in their day-to-day lives, which means that, you know, having a social worker respond to an immediate emergency call um, instead of someone with a gun, you know, um, pointed at them and, um, and trying to make that real for folks. So, yeah, I'm definitely for, yeah, yeah. What do you all make of the multiracial character of the protests and the way that people seem, that white people seem to be in the streets, not just as quote-unquote allies, but for collective liberation? It seems somewhat, somewhat novel. Malika here. I, I, kind of want to go back to what we talked in answering your question, thinking about what we talked about at the beginning, where we have multiple crises happening at the same time. And this era of protesting over the past year, we've had the most labor strikes that we've had, I think, when I was looking at the data, it might've been like the last two decades. And so you had dozens and dozens of, of unions who came together dozens of workers in all capacities, you know, from nurses to teachers to auto workers who made it clear that their demands as workers needed to be met. So I think we're in a more radical, there's just a more radical spirit, generally speaking. I think it does not hurt that we have a president who is so blatantly against workers and so blatantly against uh, defying white supremacy and who sympathizes with them. And so a lot of people are are feeling the, the, the brunt of that and that goes across race. So I think people across race are suffering. Of course, we know that Blacks and Latinos endure a disproportionate amount of that, but I, I do think this history of, uh, or this recent history of collective organizing has helped. Yeah. Jason? You know, I, I would say it was it's always been multiracial. You know, I think it's also been, you know, important conversations on the left that that needed to be had and, and have been had in terms of taking leadership from at least especially around police violence that happens to black folks, taking leadership from, you know, black folks. Um, so which I still think is important. You know, I, I think I'm really concerned about, you know, the narrative of, you know, black people, peaceful protesters, white people, outside agitators coming in 
making things violent, making things whatever, you know, like I think it, first of all, displaces the agency of, of black folks who are expressing their rage as they see fit. And also to, you know, a lot of quote unquote progressive mayors and elected officials are using that as cover then to, um, you know, to intensify violence against um, protesters um, in the name of that. Really, black folks just want to be peaceful. But then, you know, if these other folks, can't, you know, these other folks are coming in and ruining the whole thing. So, I don't know. I feel like the multiracial character was always there. I think sometimes people on the left have issues with, you know, especially kind of like, you know, like Adolf Reed disciples, like, you know, the idea that like black people should have a leadership role in that and what it looks, you know, what the protest looks like and what the demands looks like and all those kind of things. Um, and then they try to reduce it to then some sort of, oh, we're saying this is an old black only thing, which which at least in my experience, that's never been the case. And it's just good that it's intensifying and that we're moving up to scale, you know, that type of multiracial work. Kathy? Yeah, I hate to be the skeptic here, right, um, about the solidarity. Maybe it is because I'm older. I, I think this is going to be, well, I think a couple of things. One, I think we're seeing uh, the kind of multiracial nature of these protests because we've seen the multiracial impact of capitalism on multiple communities, right? The, as some people would say, a move to a gig economy that disadvantages a whole bunch of young folks in particular, the deep alienation towards <clears throat> democratic institutions that's felt across race and ethnicity. So it, it makes sense, in fact, that people would come into the street. I guess I want to say that that's the minimal test of solidarity, right? Can we get the young white people who are there demanding justice for for George Floyd, right, or to defund the police, to really understand a broader agenda that might in fact mean a full-out attack, of course, on white supremacy and a discussion of understanding how in fact white privilege functions even in their lives, right? And so I, you know, I think like Jason, I think there's always been a kind of multiracial nature to the work on the left. But there's also been deep racism on the left. And I don't think that has disappeared at this moment. And so, again, I think when the broader struggle about what, for example, a freedom city and who should lead that and what is the inside and outside uh, strategy look like, I think that's going to be more complicated than showing up in the streets for protests, which, of course, is critical. It's critical. I don't want to I'm not demeaning that at all. But I, I do think the work ahead is going to get more complicated and more difficult when it comes to thinking about kind of questions of, of racism and systemic racism and anti-Blackness. Another way to describe the multiracial character of the protest maybe is to identify its youth character. And we've touched on this a bit already from, from Black Lives Matter to the immigrant rights movement that won, won DACA and checked Obama's deportation campaign to Sunrise to the Bernie campaign. We've seen youth demanding major social and economic transformation only to be ignored and belittled and derided by the political establishment. And and Kathy, you study youth politics and how they, they change over time and have done a lot of fascinating public opinion research. D- does this represent in some sense the culmination of a, of a crisis in the incorporation of young people into our two-party system? And, and if so, what does that, what might that mean? Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's the culmination of 
just a failure of, of the two-party system, right? Um, that is elite-focused, neoliberal at best in terms of its policies, has not handled or thought about really uh, seriously the crisis of capitalism and what exclusion and to be outsiders, to have denied the fact that people no longer have any real economic stability in their lives, right? That there are all kinds of ways in which kind of the traditional party system has failed. And, and one of the things that we know is that all young people in our in the data, for example, that we've generated, say they want a third party overwhelmingly. The problem is, is people want different things out of a third party or a fourth party. And so trying to figure that out to mobilize a third party that can that would really have some power again to my skepticism right so when we ask young people about kind of the idea of an expansive state they want that they want the government to guarantee a job to anyone who works they want to support ubi they support the green new deal right they support all of that but at the same time we see deep levels of racism in many of those same young white people (laughs) now Clearly, those who identify as democratic and those who identify on the left uh, show up as less racist in our data. But I don't want to say that because someone can sign on to the idea of an expansive state or the failures of the Republican and the Democratic Party, that some because someone wants or worries about and understands the crisis of capitalism, that they also understand racialized capitalism or white supremacy in their own lives, that they are prepared to really think about the ways in which they pro- they probably live with white people, interact with white people, have not taken leadership from uh, folks of color. So I, I think it's, again, complicated, even when we talk about young people. I think there are real possibilities there of building a true multiracial coalition uh, that could do deep work to change the structures in the society. But I don't want to take that for granted just because, again, we're talking about young people or we're talking about young white people showing up to, uh, to protest consistently, which, again, that's great, but that is the easiest level when we're thinking about kind of sustained political action. Malika, Jason? Yeah, I think this is a, an excellent opportunity to talk about those intersections of race and class. I, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of national leaders who can kind of lead that conversation. I know former President Obama is going to be having a talk about George Floyd, I believe, at five o'clock. But we don't have the the sort of, of national leaders that we might have had in the, you know, during the Black Power Movement or the Civil Rights era, where they had the platform to really articulate just how ingrained both white supremacy and capitalism is in the founding of this country. So I have a bit of that skepticism. I am encouraged, I think, because Right now, you know, what, you know, what do we mean by youth anymore? You know, I'm, I'm not referring to your studies, <laughs> Kathy, but just like when we talk about it, like young people voted for Bernie Sanders and older people voted for Joe Biden. When we just talk about, you know, that sort of basic framing when young people now are millennials who are broaching 40. And right. a lot of us, <laughs> at, you know, as somebody nearing my mid 30s, you know, maybe I'm in my mid 30s. I don't know the cutoff. Um, but as someone, I guess you could say I'm in my mid 30s as a millennial, we're during the you know the economic crisis of, of 2009 when a lot of us graduated we couldn't find jobs you know there was 
extreme unemployment, a lot of us won't ever recover the same way that other generations may have from an economic crisis. And so if you combine kind of the the economic issues and, and trauma of 2001 with uh, September 11th and 2009 and Hurricane Katrina as well, a lot of us, are we've lived pretty much our entire teenage lives and adult lives in some sort of crisis. And so I think there is an opportunity there to say, okay, this is not just a one-off thing. This is not something spontaneous. There's something deeper happening here. And white supremacy was deeply involved with both Hurricane Katrina and capitalism was, you know, disaster capitalism was a big story in the recovery. And that's probably going to be the same thing that we're going to experience with coronavirus. So I think that we've got, you know, maybe compared to previous generations, I think there is more of a of a um, sort of springboard to be able to have these conversations about race and class that we might not have been able to have in you know, recent and in, in modern history. Jason? Yeah, no, I totally agree with what was said. You know, I think even in my experience, you know, now that I'm in DSA and just, you know, you're kind of in the DSA sphere, which is DSA is mainly, you know, a, a, it's a multiracial organization, but it's mainly white, <laughs> white leftists, you know, and I think there's still real issues around building meaningful solidarity, you know, like you still have a lot of white folks who are, you know, happy about Medicare for all, able to see socialism in all of its complexities and its most extreme forms, Um but then really struggle with, you know, one of the base, you know, some of the basic demands of, you know, black left and radical struggles, which is abolition and then reparations, you know, and even, you know, just recently we had, you know, like people within our organization had a pushback against an event from Adolph Reed saying that we shouldn't pay, pay attention to racial disparities when it comes to COVID-19. So, and I think those are, you know, speaking to some of the things Kathy is saying, those are real roadblocks blocks to building meaningful solidarity in the left. And so you can have people show up for protests, you can have people show up for actions, but what does that look like when you're actually trying to build strategy and build power and build inside-outside strategies if, um, you know, racial justice isn't at the center, you know, taking on anti-Blackness isn't at the center, and, um, you know, understanding what, you know, Black radical left demands are, people of color radical left demands are, like, open borders, and that's usually what it comes up in. It's not people openly, just like in regular racism, it's not people openly saying, oh, I don't listen to black people or just your thing. It's usually pushing back against the political demands of, you know, what black people, people of color on the left um, or indigenous people are saying, you know, at the time. So, yeah, that's that's super real. Biden isn't exactly rising to this moment, in part because the moment is targeting precisely figures like Biden. But the the storyline just a few weeks back was that older black voters were, were key to Biden's primary victory, while while younger black voters, of course, like other young voters, were more, more likely to support Bernie. Do these uprisings bring generational or class or other tensions and differences within black American politics to the fore? Maybe starting with you, Kathy. What has struck me, and again, it probably has everything to do with the people that I that I talked to is, in fact, the kind of intergenerational support for the mobilization that we're seeing right now from my dad, who's 93, to me, to my 14-year-old, to the many, many young people that I have had the honor to kind of work with as comrades, Jason being one. And so in a way that you could tell that kind of narrative about candidate divide, right, between Biden and Sanders, uh, I don't think that's what I'm seeing right now. Now, I, I think the divide 
is not about the support for uh, justice or the support for being free, but how that happens, right? And so what I've heard is a kind of concern, and I think at levels across generation, again, with the kind of politics of respectability, right? Which is how do we understand looting? How do we explain it? How do we justify it? And I, I do think that that is a space that we really have to kind of talk about. We have to talk about the kind of the racialized nature of the ways in which something like looting gets represented. We have to talk about all the ways in which state-sponsored extraction through fines and fees happens in communities of color all the time. We should be calling that looting. We can tell the story like everybody else is of the, you know, the beginning of this country, supposedly, that started with the looting through the Boston Tea Party. And that's not to justify it, right? This is this is the instinct to feel like you have to eventually say, I don't want to justify it. But I do want to accept that people, again, are enraged and in need and are targeting capitalist structures, even, yes, black and brown capitalist structures. So I can't, you know, I can't hear this thing about how can you take from black stores anymore or mom and pop stores. Doesn't mean mom and pop stores don't exploit the people who come in there, right? So so I, I think, you know, it that's where I see the generational divide to some degree. And I don't even know if it's a generational divide. It could be a class divide. It could just be a like, how do we think through this divide? Like, who's had the space to really think about it and who hasn't? We can even disagree. But, but you know, the electoral politics, yeah, there's a split, but we would expect the majority of, of, for example, Black people to be voting for Biden just because of who's on the other side. And I think the big issue there is this question of excitement. Who's going to just either vote for a third candidate or not vote at all? That's, that's I think, the concern of people who are playing in that arena. I think it's uh, important to really look at who we're talking about when we talk about, you know, quote unquote, the black community, because there are black voters, there are black primary voters, there are black people who are disaffected and angry and don't participate at all. And there was a study done, Sean McElway was one of the researchers looking at the nature of non-voters in the country and non-voters, by and large, the ones who voted for Obama in 2012 and stayed home in 2016 and and not because of voter suppression, but because they chose to. That was, you know, the, the framing that they were looking at. By and large, they were younger. They were people of color. They had lower incomes. And so I do think that there should be a distinction made between those who participate in the Democratic primary who did vote for Joe Biden and those who did not participate at all and may not participate in November. And a lot of my work is on non-voters and looking at kind of their, uh, anecdotally, what are their economic experiences? And so I'll just give, you know, one example. My first sort of long form reporting was in Milwaukee and it had the lowest black voter turnout in the state in for black people in its recorded history. And while about, based on, on one study of like the, the democratic counties, based on one study, maybe about 7% of that related to voter suppression. And of course, voter suppression is key. It's important. I'm from Georgia. So combating that and combating, you know, the, the GOP attack on um, black and brown people's right to vote is crucial. We also need to look at all the, the millions of people who are disaffected and feel like neither party is working for them. And those who are more likely to uh, bow out of the system altogether, if you look at, at the research, they tend to be younger people. So I think looking at this moment, we we have to captivate those people 
those young younger voters or, or younger will be voters with something that can actually inspire them and, and get them to participate. And you don't do that, I don't think, without any sort of substantive policy or proposals. And, you know, Joe Biden is not doing that. So I think what this these uprisings are are showing the rest of the world is that you know, kind of going back to what Malcolm X said in one of his his speeches, like in 1963, I believe, looking at kind of the, the bougie Negroes who believe in the process. And so they're really invested in it and they want to hold on to it. But they are a minority of us. You know, that is not the majority of the black community. Unfortunately, the majority of the black community isn't really getting their voices heard and in a way, writing is the way that a lot of people are finally getting people to pay attention to systemic issues that they've been seeing in their communities for decades. So we are going to say goodbye to Malika now. Um, <laughs> thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks, y'all. Bye, Malika. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at Patreon.com and by N Plus One Magazine, which features some of the most urgent and exciting political writing, essays, fiction, and cultural criticism on the left today. Since February, N Plus One has been publishing a ton of clarifying writing about the pandemic that might be of interest to Dig listeners. This month, N Plus One and Verso Books have collected the best of their pandemic coverage into a new ebook called There Is No Outside COVID 19 Dispatches. The book includes contributions on the coronavirus and its economic and political consequences by Gabriel Winnett, Andrew Liu, Sarah Resnick, Anna Cecilia Alvarez, Leila Khalili, Jesse Kindig, and more. And it's free with a subscription to N Plus One. Dig listeners can take 25% off a subscription at nplus1.com slash the dig. Enter the dig, no space, at checkout to get three issues delivered in the mail, plus full access to the magazine's online archive, and a copy of There Is No Outside, all for less than $3 a month. That's N-P-L-U-S-O-N-E-M-A-G dot com slash the dig. And enter the dig, one word, no spaces, at checkout. So, Jason, what are your thoughts on that, including... Uh, something that that Kathy just touched on, which is the politics of property destruction, how those play out within the uprisings, various strands within the larger world of black politics and within American politics as a whole. Yeah. And, and I would add another bucket too, kind of like the democratic socialist Bernie land world of politics, you know, and, and, you know, in all three of those buckets, I think there's, there's kind of an addiction to an idea that we always want these policies that like vast majority support, and actually, Kathy, in one of her books, Boundaries of Blackness, talks about, and if I'm missaying this, Kathy, please let me know, you know, like cross-cutting issues where people are divided about what is the consensus level of issues. And there's a bunch of issues that never actually reach, you know, this kind of political equilibrium that people want, that vast majority. So some issues are never going to be like what Medicare for All was. And that's actually what like the Civil Rights Act was, the Voting Rights Act was, right? Like, Whites consider, consistently, majorities consistently said, 
Um, blacks are asking for too much, too fast, too whatever. And so you kind of see that way in terms of, you know, are you ever going to get polling data that says, hey, do you think property destruction, even the capitalists and people who go against your life and extract from you is the best, you know, is an effective way for social change? You're never going to get majorities to poll yes to that. But you find that you need that type of action and that type of work, whether it's through writing or, or, or whether it's through like, you know, militant, organized mass disobedience like you saw in the 60s, like with the Black Freedom Movement. Um, and you've seen in other iterations, you know, those kind of things, those kind of tactics don't get mass electoral support, but you still need to have them and you still need to focus on them. And there's similar policies like that, too, around abolition, defunding police, et cetera, et cetera. So and I and I think just touching on like the Biden Sanders divide Trump divide whatever I think you know I, I'm largely partisan to the idea that there's just a lot of things that Sanders and Warren didn't do in order to you know reach out organize and mobilize black voters of all different ages right and so that's an issue that the left failed on you know and, and that includes all of us and that if anything you you saw in different regions of the country. Um, you know, what's called older black voters, which I'm a part of as a 39 year old. Um, did, <laughs> no, no, did, no, you're did, not. Did. No, you're not. No, you're not. <laughs> as a 37 year old, I, I reject that. <laughs> but you no, know, but, but the point being, like in Nevada and like, you know, in, in um, Minnesota, like, you know, there, there was areas that, you know, older black voters did, in fact, support Sanders. And it was all about how you organize and mobilize those right. voters. And so I think the, the my issue with the generational narrative is that it kind of, you know, it's ahistorical and then it allows us, especially on the left, to be like, oh, it was just Clyburn who did it and da 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 an elite capture. And we can kind of use all these big theories to explain some of our own fa- failings that we did organizing wise and that, you know, people could have been moved. Now, I'm never saying someone like Sanders or Warren maybe could have won majorities of black voters in a primary thing, but they could have been, they could have contested far better. And, in you know, and I think, and I think it's always important to remember, you know, when you're talking about progressive electoral demands, you know, the black electorate, whether how, how, however high in age you get supports policies like a guaranteed job for all Medicare for all, like all these kind of items that, that, that a lot of the other electorate doesn't maybe support in the same kind of way, but then they still chose to go with Biden, unfortunately. Kathy, can you respond to, to what Jason said in terms of how you see the connections between tactics and, and demands that have minority support and the broader left project of demands and tactics that we ultimately need to have majority support if we're going to transform society? Right. Uh, well, I mean, th- there is the question of d- d- depending on the avenue or the domain, do you need my majority support? Right. Because, right. in fact, we elect officials all the time by a majority of the voters who turn out when large swaths of the country don't vote. Right. So oftentimes there are people who are elected to office who represent us who weren't elected by the majority of people, but instead the majority of voters. But that's a technical. Or with the Electoral College, not even the majority oh, of voters. Oh, well, don't. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> and so and so we begin to focus a national election on seven states, right? Because the other states are, are thought to be, quote unquote, predictable. Yeah. I mean, I, again, to me, this is where we go back to the kind of question of organizing or political education, which is how do you take people's both experience, their consciousness, 
their, I would even say, instincts for both safety, possibility, and joy, right? Though that's those are the lives. They want to be folks want to be connected. They want to have they want to have security for themselves and their families. Uh, at least in my research, that's what I've seen. Folks want to figure out kind of ways of having dignity and joy, and they want that for other people. And so how do we take those commitments and attach them to policies that we then can, I would say, again, kind of move either through campaigns, both organizing campaigns or electoral campaigns. And I, I you know, I think we have, a, again, I'm going to say, it, I think at this moment we have a possibility in part because of the kind of multiple issues of despair uh, that many, many people face and to ideas that have been already kind of articulated, the question is, can we, or do we have an infrastructure and do we have, I guess, leaders who can begin to kind of provide a more intersectional weaving of people's commitments, those kind of more generous, humanistic commitments into policies where in fact we can build majorities, right? I mean, that's the work of politics in many ways. It's not to just find the policies where the majority of people agree because oftentimes those are watered down or shaped in ways that really benefit those who already have power. But how do we in fact build majorities and build uh, you know, build power. That's what organizing is, both in the electoral arena or or outside the electoral arena. And so this is what I meant earlier. We are seeing young people and a, a whole swath of folks going out into the streets. That is amazing. And we need to understand that as something unique. This moment is unique. But can we now leverage all of those bodies, all of the pain, all of the outrage, right? And all of the desire for something better into something we might really call a movement, right? Where we are taking and building power, where we have an agenda that we want to in fact see enacted, where we understand that we may not get that agenda across the country, but we can get them in different sites. What an organization, a coalition in Chicago calls kind of freedom cities, right? How do we how do we do that political work? And to me, that's that's the work that we're confronted with right now, which is how do we actualize right the anger and the rage and the hope that people have at this moment into something that will really kind of impact their lives, change power, shift power, and and make kind of full human lives possible for margin folks in marginalized communities. Yeah, Jason, I want to hear your, your thoughts on that, and and one way to frame a follow-up question is maybe we, we hear on the debate on the left often debates between kind of the particular versus the universal but maybe the that whole debate is sort of mis, misframed given that it's capitalism and racism that makes these divisions and particularities and so it's not is it fair to say it's not so much of a question of whether to emphasize the particular or the universal but how to stitch together particularities that are already existing into a universal yeah, I don't. I don't have much to say outside of what Kathy said. I think you know. I think it's spot on. I you know. I and, and, and I think Kiango usually expresses this also that you know all struggles need to be anti-racist, anti-sexist. You know, center the lives of you know queer folks, trans folks, and that's not just on some ethical virtue signaling thing, but it literally goes to how we build power and build and po- build a durable political coalition and solidarity. You know, um, so. Yeah, I think that work is just always has to be at the center of what we do. And and I think 
some of the issues, at least with within the left, is like you know when we have this discourse of you know I I I want to be clear I believe in building majorities, especially electoral majorities and electoral majorities that move out of the narrow sphere of who votes now, right? So I believe in that strategy, but I also have to you know I think we also have to be realistic about f- for sure Warren and Sanders both had a theory of how to build that majority and it failed, and I do think it failed for various reasons around how the how how the approach to politics around race gender, class, and sexuality worked out on both ends, right? Whether it was more of the identitarian force of of Warren or the kind of almost identity-blind focus of Sanders, right? And so I think either approaches don't work and actually don't get to the issues of what, when you're looking through something like Kathy's polling data, speaks to that group of voters who maybe don't traditionally vote but would be interested in voting if he spoke to the issues and organized around the issues in a way that they found compelling and meaningful. And so I think the question is, I mean, I think the thing is we always, we have to do it. The question is how we do it. And the rhetoric of just let's find the one thing like Medicare for all that gets everybody going that, you know, that has its limits and doesn't actually show to be the thing that actually brings everybody together. And that sometimes it's found through things that people might not think that might not pull so well, like, defunding police, right? And it's combined with Medicare for all. It's combined with other issues and other things that we might not see in polling, but we see that there's a real constituency on the ground that wants to organize, that wants to mobilize around it, and is willing to engage in strikes, mass civil disobedience, and electoral work in order to see it through. And that's how we should be thinking about building our organizations, our movement formations, um, in order to get the kind of wins that, that we need, you know? Jason is is completely right on this. Uh, as someone who does kind of play in the world of data, quantitative data, I guess what people call polling, I'm always struck by how much time is spent, not by us, but, but with others thinking about messaging versus education. It is how do we take people who are already likely to vote, what they call high propensity voters, and message to them so that they vote for our candidate? And it's less attention to how do we expand the electorate to respond and build a a capacity and an understanding of both their position and the position of others and how capitalism works and all these all these other things, these things that people know, but we want to kind of make sure they have the infrastructure and capacity to act on. So how do we expand the electorate through a process of political engagement and political education, not messaging, right? And that is the, I think, the the long theory of change, which is how, you know, how do we, how do we invest in communities? How do we build orgs? How do we think about engagement? How do we talk and, and structure political education? How do we then mobilize people based on that political education where you're building out kind of uh, leadership in those communities, right? And who can mobilize people? And then how do we kind of pull together a much more intersectional agenda that can be moved, as Jason just mentioned, where we center communities who are queer, who are trans, who are Black, who, you know, who are often been pushed to the outside of something that's considered to be more traditional institutional political power. And I, I think that is that is the issue that is kind of at the heart of how we think about even the work of elections. Is it about electing someone? 
in the most efficient manner, because if that's what it is, you're not going to be invested in expanding the electorate because it's not clear those people are going to show up, right? You're going to try to find what is that damn message I can say about Trump that will so outrage you that you'll you'll go to the polls and it won't be about connecting to other communities or constituencies. You know, it won't be about the broadest agenda. It won't be about a vision for the country. It will be about how do I get you on the first Tuesday or is it the second Tuesday um, in November to go and vote, right? And I think those of us who consider ourselves to be on the left, who want to be involved in kind of the radical transformation of people's lives and the country are thinking about the electoral arena as an expansive arena where we're building power that will change agendas and change, uh, change the country. Jason, and you know I'm a Bernie bro, so you're, you won't be surprised that I want to push back and ask some specific questions about something you said a minute ago, which is like, what worked with black voters then where it did? And what worked particularly with Latino voters who ended up becoming the core, arguably the core Sanders base across the West? Because it was the same Bernie who isn't great at talking about identity, identity, you know, in every state. Was it was the difference organizing? Yeah, I mean, I think it was one part. And I haven't looked at all the data on this. So I, I would first say that I would argue that in some places, even in the West, Bernie underperformed with Latinos. And you see that, especially in Texas um, and what the size of his victory was, especially when you compare it to um, the numbers that Beto O'Rourke got um, versus what Bernie got. Right. Um, and it wasn't close to how he did in California, let's say. Or Nevada. Or, or Nevada. Right. So I so I would first say that um, Bernie was pretty fervent in some form of an open borders platform, which um, which I think you could say, at least on the more radical edge of Latinx, like immigration politics is the call that they have. And he wasn't that for defunding police or reparations or, you know, there's there's a whole host of kind of like general radical or more harder progressive demands that come out of the black community that people, you know, that, that Bernie could have supported and he did not support. So, so I think... Bernie's stand on immigration um, and, and being more on the radical edge of it and then saying no to all deportation, something that not even Warren did, ingratiated, you know, like that people believed in some level of the political project outside of Medicare for all, right? So I think that part, right, I think, you know, just internally within the campaign, and this is all anecdotal, um, right. that he did far more empowerment of the Latinx organizers within the campaign um, and actually put more dollars and more resources in that area than he did with with the amount of with the versus the amount of black organizers and internal resources that were put towards South Carolina, Alabama, Virginia, um, you know, especially the the places in the South. You know, I believe there was an internal strategy that they didn't need to put as many resources in in order to be competitive um, with, with with the black vote. This is all anecdotal and just you know, stuff that I've been getting from from, from people um, in relation to the campaign. And so I think all of those things matter, you know, that you needed to have an internal campaign and, and and by internal campaign, internal to the Sanders campaign focused on turnout, even if, and I think part of the bet was that we're not going to win that vote, like we'll win the Latino vote. So then why should we invest in it in the same? And, but that kind of, that goes to what Kathy was talking about in terms of what is your campaign after? Is it after efficiency of turnout or is it after a certain education process and persuasion process of voters to turn them out and knowing that sometimes you might not win the majority, but you'll certainly do better than getting only 30% of an electorate 
um, or, you know, 20 percent, you know, like usually we can blame the outside if we just if we lose at the margins. Right. So we can blame, you know, like red baiting. We can blame the, you know, the DNC, you know, like coordinating against Bernie. And if you lose at the margins from five to 10 percent that, you know, you can blame them. But if you're being blown out like how Sanders was against Biden in some of these areas, that's an organ. I mean, that this is kind of like an organizing axiom. I mean, we do this just in in like labor campaigns. If if we lose to management, eighty twenty or seventy thirty, that means we did something wrong, you know. Um, right. And that's and then and that's what the Sanders campaign has to has to realize and understand that there was a much more affirmative campaign in regards to Latinx voters, in regards to even Arab American voters and other communities of color. That didn't happen with Sanders and it didn't and it didn't start to happen with, you know, Phil being made the lead, things like that until after the, you know, after everything broke down, you know, you know, two weeks after South Carolina making someone like Phil the lead um, after someone like him had been saying, hey, we need to do something about this. That's not that that's not how you, you know, a, a, that's, that, that's not how you win. And then that's also not how you build solidarity, you know, within the larger. Just to clarify for listeners, Phil Agnew from Dream Defenders, who was on the Bernie campaign. Shifting gears, in what ways has this current uprising been shaped by the political moment of the original BLM protest movement? And how has it been shaped by that movement's successes and by its failures? Well, as some people don't know, Kathy was instrumental in founding one of the, you know, lead Black Lives Matter organizations, BYP 100, you know, she had the idea of saying, hey, we need an organization for young black people to do social movement organizing, help create a convening called Beyond November. It was right after the Barack Obama election. And, you know, her pushing the idea that we need to move just past just electoral organizing as, you know, the vision and horizon for black politics, um, especially black progressive and radical politics. So just want to throw that out there. Um, But I think, you know, obviously, I think Movement for Black Lives right now and BLM right now is still shaping it. You know, I think why the I think why the idea of defunding police has so much resonance is because of the hard work that like Movement for Black Lives and Black Lives Matter and BYP 100 and, you know, hundreds and Dream Defenders. Right. And other hundreds of organizations had in terms of making the idea of decarceration a really important norm and like a leftist vision and a radical vision of decarceration and then especially abolition around why do we even need police at all and why do we need them in hospitals why do we need them in schools right like minnesota just said broke its contract with with, with their with their police department university of minnesota did the same thing um so i think really normalizing that type of demand and that type of approach to public safety public health all those things that's definitely black lives matter I think, of course, you know, this the idea that it's important to center a black people, you know, in black leftist spaces is important. I think once upon a time before Black Lives Matter, I know for sure BYP 100 got a lot of pushback because we were an all black organization. And people said that that somehow undermined solidarity and, you know, multiracial um, working class, building a multiracial working class. And we pushed back against that idea, of course. So I think in that way, in terms of, you know, it's important if we want to build a multiracial working class that's capable of winning a socialist or abolitionist politics that you have leadership from people who are who are most marginalized um, and strategy and base building. Um, and then I think lastly, you know, the tactics around, you know, de-arresting people, around laying siege to buildings. Black Lives Matter did a lot of targeting, you know, targeting police stations and making sure people could not enter in or leave out of police stations. 
um, the idea of doing jail support where you have people lay seeds to like where the jail is until um, your group of people get out or people get out, you know, like the um, the building of like bail bond funds across the country. That network that we have now was, you know, you know, Black Lives Matter was really important in shaping that type of the, the type of practice around mass civil disobedience and what to do and not to do. And I think you see that big difference in, you know, I had time in, in BYP 100, a movement for black lives. And when I'm with those people and that, that people in that sphere, we all know what to do. And then when I'm in the, the DSA sphere, Democratic Socialist of America sphere, <laughs> that, that, that muscle has not been used. They're, they're at a loss for even what the community bail fund is and, and how to relate to it. And it's not as instinctual. And of course, you know, like, you know, at least for in Chicago and I know in New York too, you know, they're taking the lead from, you know, um, movement for Black Lives affiliated organizations. It's like Asada's Daughters, you know, Let Us Breathe, all, all these different kind of groups. But you can just see the difference in how to support, you know, a rebellion mass disobedience and how to keep it going and then how to escalate it and then make sure all the support is happening. And so I think that's, you know, that that's some of the ways um, that that it's definitely, you know, is helping this moment and has helped this moment. Kathy? Yeah, I mean, I would I would agree with Jason about the significance of uh, M for BL and all the work that it's done. Let me say a couple of different things. One, I want to correct Jason's history. I mean, we were I was uh, very happy to support kind of young activists from across the country. We brought them together and they did the work of building an organization. We helped incubate, but that, you know, their leadership has always uh, been the driver behind BYP 100. I, I guess I'd say also, um, I guess I want to be careful that, you know, while defund the police and which is, I think, closely tied to a kind of framework of abolition is is clearly identified in part with m for bl and the movement for black lives i would say you know part of what's central to that work is understanding the role in particular of black queer feminism and organizations like critical resistance that kind of made and put abolition i think on a kind of broader framework within the left before m for bl and before other organizations but i think M for BL, for example, and all the organizations involved have done things like give us frameworks for thinking about what we want. So uh, divest, invest, right? We want to divest from the police. We want to invest in communities. Again, a Black queer feminism that centers those who are most marginal, not to take care of them, but to amplify voices and make sure that they hold leadership positions so that they can shape the types of campaigns and the types of programs and policies and visions for the future that we're that we're mobilizing behind. Also, as Jason said, kind of reminded us of the significance of base building and base building across the country uh, under different circumstances where chapters and different orgs can have an agenda that's specific to the conditions of, for example, Black people in those sites. I think uh, that is important, but also they have been quite attentive to the infrastructure of bringing people together to build what might be a national or transnational movement. And I think the other thing that they've done very well is to understand that the kind of pain, suffering and resistance that is rooted in the United States is not just the work of folks in the United States or not just the experience of folks in the United States. And so many of the leaders of the movement for Black Lives have sought counsel and learning 
internationally? How do folks, for example, in Palestine, what is, how do they resist? What is their analysis? What can we learn from their experiences, right? And, or in South Africa. And so I think it has become a kind of transnational movement. It has the ability to shape the left, but it's not consumed with kind of speaking to a white left. It has built its own space. It's speaking to Black people, but I think beyond Black people, it's shaping left politics more generally. But, you know, you you ask, you know, you ask the question about kind of what maybe we uh, the movement should be doing better or, or where they could turn their attention. And I do think it is this moment of we have, you know, we've gotten to a place where people are in the streets. What do we do now? And And it's not to say that they don't know how to do it. They are organizing all the time. But I do think this is a kind of critical moment where where we have lots of people who may not be, as Jason would say, attached to orgs, or they may be attached to orgs that aren't explicitly political. And how do we move them into formations where, in fact, they get both support, they get infrastructure, they get political education, and they get kind of the opportunity to mobilize and to and to create wins, right, in their lives, in their communities, in the country. Um, so I think we we owe a lot to young activists and in particular movement for black lives. Um, and there's a lot that is going to unfold over the next few years. And I think we should all do what we can to support that movement. There have been a variety of analyses of what seemed to be the end of Black Lives Matter or the movement for black lives, at least its end as a moment of intense social mobilization sometime ahead of the 2016 election. What do you both make of the way that wave of mass protest came to a close? Kianga Yamada-Taylor last year argued that part of what happened was that leadership became too distant from a mass base, among other things. She pointed to the influence of foundation funding, a move towards an inside game, an embrace of horizontalism that undermined accountable leadership. What what are your takes on what happened and and where where that all that that history that now feels like forever ago, but was only you know, four or five years ago, where that all impacts, how that all impacts what's happening now. Yeah. I mean, I think the movement has still been going on, you know, you know, there's this book called uh, Black Insurgency by Doug McAdams that I actually, you know, Kathy had, had told me about and it has this interesting chart where, you know, it shows like all this movement work happening in 54 and 55, especially with around the Montgomery bus boycott and then this like large decline until 1960s where with the sit-ins, you know, and I think, you know, sometimes in the social media age, we just want these compressed things of actions, 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 actions. Um, and I think it, it does help to, to take a long view, um, as Kathy was saying before, in terms of how social movement intensity looks like and doesn't look like. And, you know, just recognizing that people are training, trying to build organization that it's not just simply the nonprofit industrial complex absorption theory. You know, at times it explains some things, but usually I feel like it explains almost all things and that's always a factor. So I think it was less of a decline and more just, you know, a movement trying to, and a movement that was still trying to find different footing. But there's a lot of movement for Black Lives related organizations in Minneapolis, you know, Black Visions Reclaim the Block. And they've been doing great work and great support and trying to make this moment happen and, um, you know, with an outside inside strategy. And I think that's some of my issue all the time with trying to 
narrate a decline when a decline hasn't happened. It's just a change in approach and a, and a change in conditions. Kathy? I mean, I would I would agree with Jason largely um, and and also voice my own frustration at times when I've called up folks and said, hey, 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 what's going on? What's going on? And I know that movement orgs can't mobilize and engage in protests every day, right? Or even over long stretches of time, there is a need to kind of build capacity. There is a need to continue to organize. Uh, I think I, at times, have been less concerned about our folks in the streets and more about are you continuing to expand your base, right? You can you can get so focused on deepening your base, right? Making sure everybody has political education, which they should, right? Making sure everyone is safe through safety and healing, making sure folks are committed, having national meetings, that you can lose sight of the work of continuing to expand the base. So I wouldn't call that the decline of the movement. I would say that there has been at times a shift in the focus of the movement, and that at the same time, yep, there has been foundation money uh, involved, as there should be in supporting this work, because in fact, what we're trying to do is to build a base and infrastructure in in communities where folks can mobilize. And I think I started with this when you asked about this moment. I really do believe that it's been kind of a generation of building base, of building infrastructure, of showing the possibility of organizing from the immigration rights marches to Occupy to M4BL that has said to a whole range of young people that mobilization, protests, and organizing can lead to changes that we might not see in the electoral arena. If I go back to my data, we ask young people, what's the best way, what are the best methods to actually create change and progress, for example, around racism in this country. And overwhelmingly across young people of color, the number one answer was organizing. And way down on the list, like in 13th places, <laughs> was national elections, right? So I, I, think, I think these orgs are growing, they're learning, they're making mistakes. I think we, we make a mistake when we spend too much time kind of writing about their demise instead of thinking about how we can provide support for them. And they're going to have missteps. That is just the nature of it, right? But we also have to look at what is made possible just by their existence and the work that they're doing and to encourage them always to be expanding, to be building a bigger base and always going deeper. Because in fact, what we're trying for is not one election, right? But to change the entire landscape. And so um, I just want to thank them for doing the work that they do. Kathy Cohen, Jason Perez, and Malika Jabali, who had to run a little while back. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you. Kathy Cohen is a professor at the University of Chicago, the author of Boundaries of Blackness and Democracy Remixed, the founder and director of the Black Youth Project and the Gen Ford Survey, and helped start the political organizations Black AIDS Mobilization, the Audre Lorde Project, and, most recently, Scholars for Social Justice. Jason Perez is a senior research analyst at Acre and organizes with DSA's Afro-Socialists and Socialists of Color Caucus, and he used to work as a lead organizer for SEIU Local 73 and BYP 100. 
Malaika Jabali is a writer, activist, and filmmaker whose first short film, Left Out, examines the economic crisis facing black Midwesterners. There is a link to Malaika's film in the show notes. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that the police, the judiciary, and the administration are not deputies of civil society itself, which manages its own general interest in and through them. Rather, they are officeholders of the state whose purpose is to manage the state in opposition to civil society, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways. Our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio. And please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, you can also leave us a nice review. Those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners. And what really does that, though, is you telling friends about the show and why you like it, why you listen to it, etc. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us on Patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation going. Even a few bucks is huge.